be really useful if you have a Bible and have it turned to Hebrews. We're looking at the end of chapter 3 and the start of chapter 4. It be really, really helpful in following this to have a Bible open in front of you if you can. So we're working through this amazing letter, although it's, it's more like a long sermon or a bunch of sermons. It doesn't start like a letter, but clearly was written to believers in around Jerusalem and Judea um, a couple of decades after the Lord Jesus lived and died and rose again. And it's a book about not giving up. The writer wants his readers, and that includes us, to keep on keeping on following Jesus. That's really what the whole book is about. As I said, it's written, he's writing to Christians from a kind of Jewish, a Hebrew background. That's where the name of the book comes from. Christians from a Jewish background who turn to Jesus, but who are now finding the Christian life really tough. You may know a bit of history that in those days, the Jewish religion, Judaism, was a licensed religion. The Roman emperor licensed Jews to be Jews. That was okay. Christians were an unlicensed religion, and that wasn't good. You didn't have the protection of the state, and you could be persecuted. And these Christians were clearly finding it just really hard. They wanted to follow Jesus, but they just weren't sure it was worth it. It was so hard. We might not have the same struggle with being an unlicensed religion in the Roman Empire, though it might feel like it's going that way in this country. It really, it's not the same struggle they had. Yet, for us, the Christian life, following Jesus can be really tough for so many different reasons. These brothers and sisters these Hebrew Christians, were thinking about chucking it in and just going back to their old lives. And so the writer is showing them over and over again through this letter that Jesus is better. Don't go back to what you had before. Why not? Because Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Don't give up. Don't go back. Keep following him. He's worth it. He's amazing. Think about what he's done for you. Think about what he's doing for you. Think about how amazing it is just to know him. And think about how amazing it'll be to see him face to face and be with him in glory forever. That's what the writer's writing his letter about. And in our passage today, it's one of these Jesus is better passages. In our passage today, the writer wants us to see that only Jesus gives true rest. You're going to hear that word rest a lot. Jesus gives true rest to his people. My title for this message is Don't Miss Out on God's Eternal Rest. That's really what he's, he's writing to exhort these Jewish Christian brothers and sisters nearly 2,000 years ago. Don't miss out on God's eternal rest. But what exactly does the Bible mean by rest? What does it mean to enter God's rest, which our passage has and our reading from Psalm 95 talks about too. Our passage, of course, quotes from Psalm 95 that Dav opened with. It talks about entering God's rest. What does it mean? What does rest mean? What does entering God's rest mean? Well, rest isn't just putting your feet up, maybe putting the football on, maybe opening a cold beer 
and relaxing. If that's what rest was, I'd still be at John's house watching the game. Biggest game of the Premier League. Liverpool-Man City is still going on. If you know the final score, please don't tell me. If that was what rest was, we'd all be around John's house, wouldn't we? An anime's house. Um, but John's more into the game, probably. We'd be round there, wouldn't we? That, if that was what rest was, and entering God's... Of course, that's not what the Bible's talking about. Rest, really, in a word, means being saved. Why rest? Well, rest is about resting from our labour. Resting from our... Being set free from our slavery to sin. The people of Israel, in the passage we read earlier, had been rescued from Egypt where they were slaves to enter God's rest where they'd be free to worship him. That's the sense of entering God's, God's rest. It's salvation. It's being free to worship him. Not laboured down with our sin, with death, with the devil, and all that's wrong in this broken world. Entering God's rest is entering God's perfection with God. That's the sort of picture the Bible has when it talks about rest. To enter God's rest is to be free from sin, eventually. Fully free from sin and to be face to face with Jesus. Isn't that a thing to look forward to? To be free from sin and to be face to face with Jesus. Then we will finally have entered God's rest. And that's what's at stake in this passage here. These Hebrew Christians, these Christians who'd turned to Christ from a Jewish background and were thinking of going back because it was too hard, are at risk of missing out on God's eternal rest. But brothers and sisters, believers in the Lord Jesus, if that's what you are this evening, we can be in the same danger. Life can be hard. We can be in danger of just giving up on Jesus. And so these words are for us as much as they were for them. I'm going to work through the passage with, with four headings. My first heading is this. This is really what the writer is saying to these Hebrew Christians. You've come so far. So don't give up on Jesus now. You've come so far in the, in the walk, in the life. Don't give up on Jesus now, looking mainly at verses 7 to 11. Any of you here, and I know some of the children have, ever seen the YouTube channel, Fail Army? Hands up if you have. Just our younger audiences. Basically, video, a little bit like what you used to get on You've Been Framed, if you were a bit older. Um, basically, the kids don't know what I'm talking about. You adults know what I'm talking about. You've Been Framed, Jeremy Beadle and all that. Basically, video after video after video on, on this YouTube channel of people failing. Usually someone getting injured, someone doing a stunt on a skateboard and ending up impaled on, a, impaled on a spike. It's not normally that graphic, but that's sort of, you know, breaking things, things falling apart. Epic fails. And most of them are hilarious, although some of them look a bit staged, like you've been framed used to. Well, we are looking here at an epic fail in the Bible story, an absolutely colossal epic fail. The difference here, though, is this one isn't funny at all. This one wouldn't make a very good fail army clip. It's a huge fail, but it's not funny. In fact, it's deadly serious, and the writer wants to see something re us to see something really serious from it. You see, he's taking us back. You saw that in the readings we had earlier. He's taking us back to when the Israelites were rescued out of Egypt, where they'd been slaves, and God was taking them to a land he had promised to give them where they would be free to worship him. 
But almost everyone, they reckon about a million people or so, left Egypt. How many made it to the promised land? Two. The people failed. It was an epic fail. The the promised land, you know, the clue's in the name. It was the land promised to them if they would trust their God. But they didn't. They didn't enter it. They died in the desert, halfway between Egypt, where they were being set free, and the promised land that God said he would give them. They died in the desert. Why? Because they didn't persevere. They didn't keep going, trusting him. They abandoned him. They gave up. They wouldn't believe him anymore. They didn't keep on going. If you have a Bible in front of you, let's look at the first few verses of this, where the author quotes from Psalm 95. So this is Hebrews, written about 2,000 years ago, quoting Psalm 95 from nearly 3,000 years ago, which is referring to something that happened a few hundred years before that. The Bible here is sweeping across history. So this is Hebrews quoting Psalm 95, talking about something best part of three and a half thousand years ago. But this is what he says, remembering that time when they came out of Egypt, but they didn't make it to the promised land. You with me? That's what's going on. So the writer to the Hebrews begins, so as the Holy Spirit says, I love how he does that. He introduces a reading from God's word by saying, as the Holy Spirit says. This is God speaking. That's how he sees this psalm that David came through. David, we're told, hundreds and hundreds of years before, But really, it was the Holy Spirit speaking. Anyway, as the Holy Spirit says, verse 7, today, if you hear his voice, God speaking again, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts so that you don't hear what God's saying, he's saying. As you did in the rebellion. He's talking to, to, to the Jewish people, principally, whose ancestors a few hundred years before had rebelled in the way we remembered when they came out of Egypt and they died in the desert. Do not harden your hearts as you did in that rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness when your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That's why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts, hearts keeps coming back in this passage, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways so I declared on oath God swears when he sees their behavior he swears I declared on oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest rest here being the promised land but it's obviously a picture, as we'll see as we go through, of the spiritual reality of being saved from sin and being free. The physical promised land is a picture of something even more wonderful. But God says to these guys, I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So the ancient Israelites died in the desert and they missed the promised land. It was their kids after them that went in and inherited the land of Israel in those days. And the, his, the point's kind of obvious, isn't it? Why is the writer to Hebrews quoting Psalm 95? Well, because his readers are in danger of doing exactly the same thing that they were. Yeah? Serious, isn't it? These Jewish Christians were well, thinking of giving up and going back to their old life. The writer's saying to them, don't do it. Your ancestors tried that. 
in the time of Moses. And it didn't work out well for them, did it? Don't go there. What I'd like us to do, keep a finger in uh, Hebrews 4. If you can turn back to near the beginning of your Bible, to the book of Numbers, the uh, fourth book of the Bible, the book of Numbers. And we're going to read some verses, just so you've got in your head what actually happened. Because the rest of this passage, it was written to people who knew this story. They knew what had gone on in the Exodus. And it really brings home the seriousness. So we're going to do that. Read from Numbers 14. I'm going to start at verse 1. So where are we in the story? The first few books of the Bible are the story of God rescuing. After he creates the world, later then, his people end up slaves in Egypt and he brings them out. So where are we in the story? They've been slaves in Egypt. God sent Moses to rescue them. There have been those plagues, the ten plagues, the last of which was the death of the firstborn. You remember the story? The firstborn in every house was going was to die. And God gave them the Passover lamb. If the blood of the lamb was painted on the doorposts, God's judgment would pass over the home. And through that, the Egyptians kicked out the Israelites. They said, go, we can't stand this anymore. Go, go. Through the blood of the lamb, God's people were saved out of Egypt. And then we read of them being led with God's presence among them as a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. We read of them going through the Red Sea miraculously and the Egyptian army being disposed of. We read of them then going to Mount Sinai and God appearing to them in fire on the mountain. God's presence was there again. He gave them his law. We read of God giving them manna, bread from heaven in the desert. God was looking after them. He was showing them. He was in their midst over and over and over. He showed them who he was, what he's done for them, his holiness, all that he would do. He proved he was taking them to the promised land. And then it comes to the point where they're going to enter the land. And it's, it's going to be exciting. They send 12 spies to have a look round. So they're ready to go and take it militarily. And it all goes wrong. The 12 spies come back and 10 of them, the old song I remember as a Sunday school child, does anyone know the song? 12 spies went to spy out Canaan. 10 were bad, 2 were good. 10 of the spies come back going, yeah, it's a, it's a good land. Nice, nice fruit, nice trees, but no, no. The people are too big, too fierce. The swords, the, the weapon, no, no, we can't do it. And 2, Joshua and Caleb said, no, God has promised he will give us somewhere to dwell to be ours, to be free. And that is where he's leading us. So we need to go with God to where he's taking his people. But the others said, no, no, there's no way. Let's just turn around and go back into the wilderness. And we pick up Numbers 14 at that point in the story. Let's see what happens. Numbers 14, verse 1. That night, when these 10 have given them this dreadful report, that night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud because they no longer believed God. They wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, to Moses and Aaron, if only we died in Egypt in our slavery. Or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us, and listen to this, this is what the writers of the Hebrews wants them to pick up on, wouldn't it be better for us to go 
back. Do you see that? Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They abandon God's plan. They abandon God. They turn away. There's some dialogue. God speaks. But the, the, the judgment, the oath, the promise that they shall not enter God's rest comes in verse 20 or from verse 26. Flick on to verse 26 of chapter 14. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, we're back kind of nearly three and a half thousand years ago here. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, how long will this wicked community grumble against me? I've heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord. That's the oath that we've heard of in Hebrews. When God swears in his anger, that's his oath. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. What were they fearful of? The sword. The sword of judgment coming on them. The sword of, of their enemies, rather, coming on them. I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In the wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was in, counted in the census and who's grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except the two spies, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them to enjoy the land you have rejected. But you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. And it continues. Your children will be shepherds here 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days, you explored the land, that's the 12 spies again, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. It's the oath again. I, the Lord, have spoken and will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which is banded together against me. They will meet their end in this wilderness. Here, they will die. You see why the writer to Hebrews is pointing people back to this? If you give up on Jesus, he's saying, you're just like this. You're just like this. It's just a stark warning. They would have known this story. They would have known these passages. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is taking you. If only you will trust in him. Jesus is taking you to God's eternal rest. Are you a Christian here this evening? Jesus has brought you this far. He died for you on that cross of Calvary and rose again for you. And at the right time, he draws us to himself, doesn't he? In that wonderful way that he does, that we would know him and come to him and call on his name and call him Lord. And he's leading us, his children, home. All who put their trust in him, he leads them home. And if that's you, the writer's saying to you, this writer of Hebrews is saying to you, you've come so far don't go back to Egypt now. Don't go back to your old life. Don't go back to slavery. Don't give up on Jesus. My second heading. It's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. So make sure your heart is up to it. Uh, 
my gramp, my, my mother's father, passed away a year last January. Um, and he had an aneurysm. And he had it for many years. And he knew, almost certainly, he would die from it. But they didn't treat it because his heart wasn't up to it. He would have died in the surgery. So for many years, he was happy. He trusted in the Lord Jesus. He knew where he was going. He knew when his time came, it would probably take him quickly. And there were worse ways to go. He knew that. But my point here is, his heart wasn't up to it. So they couldn't treat him. And and in this passage here, we're being encouraged from verse 12 to just think about this. Is your heart fit for the journey ahead? Is your heart ready for what's coming? That you would keep on keeping on to the end of the journey. You'll see what I mean as we read these verses. Look at verse 12. Of, back in, we're back in Hebrews 4 now. So Hebrews 3, end of Hebrews 3, and verse 12. The writer is basically taking that Old Testament story we've just been looking at and really applying it to his hearers now and applying it to us. He says this, See to it, brothers and sisters... So he's addressing all Christians. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you, people he calls brothers and sisters, he's talking to Christians here. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's Deceitfulness. Hardened in heart, that means. The spiritual equivalent of having blocked up arteries. Again, having a heart not up to the job. See to it. None of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And he continues. This is really interesting. We have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. We've come to share in Christ, become a Christian, that means, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice talking to Christians, do not harden your hearts. So don't harden your hearts away from God. Open your heart to hear from Jesus, he's saying, and follow him. Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Now we know, don't we, we are saved by God's grace. We're saved by grace alone. It's entirely a free gift. And we're saved through faith. We receive God's free gift when we trust in Jesus through faith in Christ alone. That's true. And nothing I'm going to say contradicts that. But there's a couple of other things this passage insists on that we must also believe about saving faith. We're saved by faith. But the passage we've just read tells us some really surprising things about saving faith. The first is in those verses I just read, and it's this. First, real saving faith, true faith, the kind of faith by which we receive the gift of all that Jesus has done for us when he lived and died and rose again for us. Saving faith is what? It's persevering faith. Do you see that? True faith in Jesus is faith that keeps on trusting to the end. Otherwise, it's not true faith. Verse 14 again. We have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. It's striking, isn't it? 
That means if I turn away and abandon Jesus, or just abandon following Jesus and living for Jesus, if I will not put Jesus first in my life, which is really what these Hebrews would have, would have done, just faded away, then I'm not really trusting Jesus, and I never have really trusted Jesus. If I don't hold my conviction firmly to the end, I have not come to share in Christ, the writer says. The test of faith then, sometimes we know not everyone who seems to be a Christian keeps going trusting Jesus. Sometimes we, we try and make it all about our believing. We say, well, have you believed? Have you really believed? Have you really, really, really believed? Have you really, really, really believed? That's the way we talk. That's not the test. The Bible never says that. It's not how personally and really, 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 really. It's, am I persevering? Am I going on with Jesus? That's the test. That's the test. The test of my faith, my faith and your faith, is whether I have a persevering, a clinging to Jesus, whatever kind of faith. That's true faith. We know Jesus is worth it. We know there's nowhere else to go. So whatever happens, we cling to him. That's real faith. The only reliable evidence that someone believes is that they keep on repenting and believing. What's the evidence we repented and believed once? Children, have you repented and believed in Jesus? Well, the evidence will be that you go on repenting, turning away from sin and turning to Jesus because he's worth it. And the second surprising thing about faith, saving faith, comes in the next couple of verses. And it's this, it's possible to look very much like a believer, to look like we're full of faith, and really to be nowhere at all. Look how the writer goes on to, he draws this lesson too from, from what happened in ancient Israel and Egypt. Look at verse 16. He says this, Who were they who heard and rebelled? Asking us about those people in Numbers 14, you remember? Who came out of Egypt but died in the desert, didn't go into the promised land. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? Apart from Caleb and Joshua. Yes. It was the very ones who'd come out, the very ones who had all that grace. How much grace did they have? They had the blood of the lamb. They had Moses and Aaron. They had the mountain, the fire, the, 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 the pillar of cloud, the fire at night. They had the salvation from Pharaoh's... God kept blessing them. The manna, they had grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those as Moses led out of Egypt? And yet in the end, they wouldn't keep on going with their God who saved them. Verse 17 continues then. And whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? Of course it was. They looked so promising. They painted the blood of the lamb on their doors and the angel of death passed over. It looked so good, but it came to nothing. And whom to... Verse 18, and to whom did God swear they would never enter his rest? What a terrifying thing. It's a picture of heaven. Who did God swear they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed? So we see they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Do you see that? They look like believers, the writer's warning us, but they weren't. How much we need to make sure that we really are following and trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Put those together. So if one, saving faith, real faith is persevering faith that clings to Jesus, whatever. And two, we can look like believers, 
not really be believers and have hard hearts. What should we do? Well, he tells us. Verse 1 of the next chapter, the next verse. Let's read. Therefore, given those points we've just made, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news, gospel. We've had gospel proclaimed to us just as they did. We've had a gospel message which will be of no more use than the message they heard was to them. No more use to us if we won't have believing hearts than the message they had was to them. They died in the desert. It's a picture of spiritual death, isn't it? They had a, there was a physical salvation that they missed out on. It's a picture of something deeper and darker. The gospel they heard was no use to them in those days. And the gospel you've heard will be no use to you in these days if you behave the same way, he's saying. We've had good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they didn't share the faith of those who obeyed. That is Joshua and Caleb too. Brothers and sisters, we need Jesus to give us hearts to trust him and obey him. Do you see over and over in these verses, the scriptures are warning about the heart, the heart, the hard, hard hearts, hearts that turn away. We need hearts to trust and follow Jesus. That's our greatest need, isn't it? Practically. Jesus has died on the cross that all who trust in him might be in glory. But for that to be of any value to us, we need to trust him. And to trust him, we need him to change our hearts so we we keep on keeping on following him. We need new hearts. Jesus said to Nicodemus, didn't he? No one can see the kingdom of heaven Unless he's born again. It's the same point. We need God to work in our hearts that we might have persevering faith. When we first believe, it's like getting a heart transplant, isn't it? God changes our hearts. But the Christian life doesn't stop there. The writer here is writing to people who, as far as he's he's aware, most, if not all of them, are believers. They have new hearts. So what do you need if you have a new heart? What do we all need, to, even if we don't have heart disease, what do we need to do to our hearts? We need to exercise our hearts. Don't we? we need to keep our hearts healthy. That's what he's exhorting us to here too. We need to exercise our hearts. We need a new heart from Jesus. and We need his help to keep our hearts fit for the road ahead. Proverbs 4.32, one of my favorite Proverbs, says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Or the older translations say it's the wellspring of life. Don't they? Guard your heart. We need hearts fit for the journey, hearts that are going to cling to Jesus. And if you don't feel like that today, ask Jesus to do it. He will. Ask him to give you trust in him, to give you a heart that loves him and clings to him. Whatever happens, he will do it. He's died for you. He's died for you. And he's more than willing to clean you up on the inside, to give you a new heart and to keep you going fit through all that lies ahead and to take you in to glory. Brothers and sisters then, Christians, if you're a Christian here today, are you looking after your heart? Children, are you looking after your heart? Not this physical heart, but the heart that controls everything about you, the heart, your heart that is your desires and your will, the heart that can turn away from God or run towards God. Are you looking after your heart? Are you much in prayer? 
Am I? Are you much in your Bibles? Are you hearing Jesus' voice daily? Are you repenting daily of your sin, turning away from it? Lord, forgive me. Lord, change me. And trusting in him again daily, following him daily. That's what it means to look after your heart, isn't it? Proverbs 4.32 again. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. A Christian life that perseveres to the end flows from the heart. And the the writer emphasises that over and over and over again through these verses. In the end, whether you make it or not to glory is going to depend ultimately on your heart. Jesus' work in your heart, to be specific. Whether you will live or die depends on having a heart that follows after Jesus. A heart after his own heart, as was said of David. A heart to keep on keeping on. So please... Make sure your heart is up to it. And if you don't know, speak to one of the leaders here. Or even better, speak to Jesus. Ask him to do it for you. To give you that trust in him that will keep you going to the end. Thirdly, don't settle for religion. Because Jesus' rest is better than all the rest. Do you like the weekend? I like the weekend. I like the weekend even more than I used to. Julie and I were just talking about this yesterday morning because we no longer have Karen swimming at 8.30 on a Saturday morning. That improves the weekend. Um, Saturday is a bit of a lion. Sunday is a bit of a lion. Neither of them are big lions. We have sports, we have things on, but they're much bigger lions in the week. But of course, Monday morning comes round and that alarm goes back and you're back to work. It's short-lived, isn't it? And Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath day, Saturday, was supposed to be like that. It was a temporary day of rest that pointed to something more wonderful, that pointed to God's eternal rest. God ordained it from creation and his commandments for the Jewish people so that they would be anticipating his rest, being with him forever in glory. It was that one day out to be with him to look forward to when it would be permanent, to look forward to the day when the alarm wouldn't have to be set again. Oh no, in their case, Sunday, because Saturday was the day off. Sunday morning or Monday morning. And the Hebrew Christians were thinking of going back to Judaism. You know, that in Judaism, pretty much the most important thing in Jesus' day was the Sabbath. Do you notice how almost always when Jesus got into trouble with religious leaders, it was over the Sabbath, wasn't it? That was the big sign. Getting the Sabbath exactly right, doing it right. It was this burdensome thing. It's meant to be a rest. It was a burdensome thing to them to get it right, the Sabbath. And these Christians, if they go back to Jesus, they were going back to that kind of thing, that kind of religion. And the writers say, no, that kind of, all that the Jews stand for, especially in the Sabbath, it was pointing to something. We say it about the temple, don't we? We're used to thinking of the temple as a signpost. It was just a temporary thing that pointed to Jesus. Well, the Sabbath was a bit like that. It was a temporary thing, a one day in seven thing. During those days, that pointed to something much more wonderful that Jesus was going to do eternally for his people. But these Jews are risking going back to something temporary and something that's just one day in seven, missing out on the eternal reality. That's what he wants them to see here. Look at verse three. Now, we who have believed enter that rest. That's God's eternal rest that we've been discussing through these verses. We who have believed enter that rest. One day we'll be perfectly at rest in heaven with Jesus. 
Just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. That is people who, don't, who will not believe him and trust him and, and, and follow him. And then the writer says this, and yet God's works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere, he's talking about Genesis 2, for somewhere he's spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. So God rested on the seventh day. And again, in this passage, he says, they shall never enter my rest. So the writer's referring back to Genesis 2. And again, it's always worth, when Hebrews refers to a passage, always worth going and reading it. He almost just references the passage. He expects you to go and look them up. Anyway, back to Genesis 2. God creates the world in six days, and then he rests with an eternal rest. God did not create the world in six days, have a day off, and then make another world for six days, and then have a day off, and then make another world. God created the world in six days, and that work of creation, he has rested from it eternally. And so once a week, the Jews were to remember that. Genesis 2, verse 1. Let me just read you a couple of verses. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Talking about the sixth day here. The heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array, By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he'd already finished, eternally finished. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. He rested eternally, but he gave a day that pointed to his rest. And that's what the writer was picking up on here. God didn't have Saturday off and go back to work on Sunday or Monday. He rested eternally. And we know from Exodus that the Israelites who rebelled were keeping the Sabbath day. Those whom it was, of whom it was said, you shall never enter my rest, had been keeping the Sabbath. We can read about that. They kept it very carefully. People were even put to death for getting it wrong in Exodus. They were keeping the Sabbath day very carefully. Those who are keeping the Sabbath, God says, they will never enter my rest. In other words, they were keeping the Sabbath, but they didn't get the thing the Sabbath was meant to point them to, the eternal rest. God says to them, they shall never enter my rest. The Israelites had the signpost, the Sabbath day, but they didn't get into the promised land. And they certainly didn't get into the thing that the promised land pointed to spiritually, trusting in Jesus and going to heaven. They certainly didn't get that. But they had a weekly Sabbath. Do you see what he's saying? That's what really these Hebrews are at risk of going back to. Just going back to the signpost, missing out on Jesus and heaven and all that God was pointing them to. He's saying, don't do it. Don't do it. The signpost was good. A day's rest is good. Worshipping the Lord is good. But don't miss out what it's pointing you to. Heaven, Jesus, eternity. They risk going back just to Judaism. What's Judaism in, in those days? Judaism is the Old Testament with Jesus taken out. It's grim. It was grim. The Old Testament with Jesus taken out. Outside of Christ, no one will ever enter God's eternal rest. But if we will keep on trusting in Jesus, we will enter 
God's eternal rest. That's what he's saying. Look at verse 6. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest one day, those who have faith, those who are trusting in Jesus, since it remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again said a certain day, calling it today, This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And just in case they were thinking, yeah, but their children went in and they got the promised land. Is that that the promised rest? He's saying, no, 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 no. It's pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to heaven. He says, look, verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, Joshua took their kids in who did get the land. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later hundreds of years later in David's day, about another day. Do you see the point? The first Israelites failed to go in. They didn't enter God's rest. Joshua did give their children the land, and God's still saying, make sure you don't miss out on my rest, because there's a much more important rest. I'm laboring this because the writer does. We're just really following through what he says. There's a future rest. And he says... Verse 9, there remains in future, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, their labor, their toil, their slavery in the imagery of, of rest, just as God did from his. We enter God's perfect rest, and it's all still to play for. Do Christians keep a Sabbath rest in this formal sense? Yes. We don't normally call it a Sabbath rest. We normally call it heaven. That's the normal word we use for it. Yes, that is what the Sabbath is pointing us to. At the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation uses the same language for what we're going to have in heaven. I'm just going to read you a couple of verses. You don't need to turn to it, but let's listen to this. Revelation chapter 9, verse 13. John is writing to those who were going through persecution, just like Hebrews is. And he says something amazing about rest. John John says this in Revelation 9.13. He says, Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this. Blessed, which means happy. Happy are those. Sorry, happy are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Why are they happy? Yes, says the Spirit. They will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. It's a matter of life and death, friends. We make every effort to enter God's rest, to keep on keeping on, to keep on following Jesus. But how should we do it? Well, we've already said we have to make sure our hearts are fit. We need to be coming to Jesus for healthy hearts, exercising our hearts. But there's a very particular way, one of the ways I've already mentioned that the the passage emphasizes now. It's by hearing and obeying the word of God with believing hearts. That's the way to be ready. It's my final heading, and I'll be slightly shorter. Jesus one day will judge by his word. So make sure you're listening to that word now. That's where the the writer goes. Verses 12 and 13. Look at verse 11. Sorry, I should have said 11 to 13. Look at verse 11. He says, given all that, given what I've just said, given that we've got a Make every effort. We've got to be ready. We've got to be fit. He says this. He says, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of of disobedience. For 
The Word of God is alive and active. Go straight to the Word. He says some more things about the Word in a minute, which we'll come on to, but let's just consider that first. There is a warning here. If we want to be ready for Jesus coming one day, if we want to have hearts fit to keep going, whatever happens, we need to be people of the Word, people who let the Word of God, the message of Jesus, the Bible, change us. And he immediately goes into a warning about the Word of God. It's, it, it starts positive. Let's therefore make every effort to enter. He says, for the word of God is alive and active. But what he goes on to immediately then is actually a warning if we don't listen to the word of God. Now, do you remember back in Numbers 14, what was it that the Israelites feared? They didn't want to go into the land because they feared, do you remember what it was? What piece of equipment did they fear? A sword. A sword. Do you remember how God had to say to them, I'm going to give you the thing that you fear? They feared a sword. Don't send us there. The people will slay us by the sword, they said. They were frightened of the sword of man. The writer, I'm sure, has that in mind when he, what he writes here. In Numbers 14, they feared the sword of human beings, the people of the land. But God said he would send them a sword of judgment. He said he'd give them the very thing they feared. And I think that's what the writer has in mind. You see... At the end of the age, when heaven and hell hang in the balance, that's what we're talking about here, heaven and hell are hanging in the balance, God's sword will swing again. And it's far more scary than any double-edged sword of the Canaanites, the writer is saying, far more scary than any double-edged sword in the hands of human enemies, because this is a word of judgment from the Lord to those who just have not wanted him and will not follow him and, and want nothing to do with him and will not believe in him. This is it. Look at the second part of verse 12. Sharper than any double-edged sword, talking about the word, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It goes to the very heart and core of a person. It perceives what no one else can perceive. God will not be fooled on the last day, he's saying. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the what? Of the heart. He's still on the heart. The word of God. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Jesus is coming. Jesus will judge the world by his word. So Hebrews is saying, you think it was bad what they feared in those days? No. Remember that Jesus is coming. He is the saviour. He wants to take a people home to be with him forever. He's poured out his blood. He loves you. But ultimately, for those who reject him, the sword of judgment, the word of God is coming. Make sure you're believing it and putting it into practice day by day, exercising your hearts, being fit for the journey, for the road ahead. Make sure you're making time for Jesus' word now if you want to be ready for those days. You see the contrast. He's telling them that they need the word of God, which is alive and active. And he's telling us why, because if they don't, they won't be ready for this word of God that's coming at the end of the age. And we need the word of God now to be ready for that word of God then. 
when Jesus judges the world by his word? Are you making room for the Bible? Are you meeting Jesus on the pages of the Bible? Are you believing Jesus, loving him, coming to know him, putting his word into practice? Are you being transformed in your heart? That's what the word of God does that is living and active. Because Hebrews warns us, a sword of God's final judgment is coming. I'm going to go to Revelation again. John seems to, I'm sure John has read Hebrews because he keeps seeming to to put in this wonderful vision language of things that that Hebrews is talking about. We get another one, Revelation 19, 11 to 16. He seems to give us a vision of exactly what Hebrews has just been describing. We read this, Revelation 19, John's vision of the end of the world from verse 11. John says, I saw heaven. This is just a vision. It's, It's kind of vision, apocalyptic language, but you can see what it's talking about in all the figures and and so on. Listen to this. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Who's that? It's Jesus. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. This is Jesus who died for his people. And is alive. And his name is the, listen, the what? The Word of God. You got that? His name is the Word of God. Same Word of God. Hebrews. Hebrews begins, God has spoken to us in his Son. Jesus is the Word of God. The Word of God. His name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on a white horse and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, a horrific image. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is coming soon. By his word, he will judge all. Don't miss out on God's eternal rest. Put Jesus' word into practice now. I'm going to close finally with a few words of Jesus from Matthew 11. And I'll hand back to Dav. Jesus himself says, Matthew 11:28, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened or heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Amen.